Good to see you this morning. Uh, I liked your little pushback when <laughs> Pastor Gordon missed your, our cue for fellowship. This is just, so this is the power of the pew right here in action. You just weren't going to put up with it. That's great. A couple of announcements before we get into the Word. just want to remind you of home fellowships as we… I don't know what to do. It used to be that uh, the change of season from summer into fall was uh, September, and then now the school changes the schedules and everything, so everything's up in the air. But so we'll be in a fall mode here, even though it's August. And as we head into that new section of the year, just want to make you aware of home fellowships, great way to connect. Uh, with the body of Christ, connect with others, connect within the church. Lots of home fellowships are offered. They're listed in your bulletin and also uh, on, online, and uh, they meet weekly in homes. And it's a time to um, review uh, interactively whatever was taught on the Sunday morning. We don't have a chance to do that on a Sunday morning, and a chance to do that, worship together, pray together, uh, care about one another, lift one another up. It's a, it is a great thing to be uh, involved in. And so our desire is to have each of us be involved in some kind of a smaller group within the church uh, each week, and home fellowships can be a part of that. Our newest home fellowship that is uh, opening up now on Friday evenings is led by Tom Gamez. And uh, he and his wife, Christine, are going to be at a table in the fellowship hall after the service just to say hi. Even if you're not going uh, to go to a home fellowship, say hi to them. They're really nice people and someone that you'll want to meet. So you can pick up flyers at the information counter with a listing of all the home fellowships that are available to you. It's a little family within the body of Christ. And sometimes the way the United States is, we got family in Toledo, we got family in Miami, and we've got family up in Seattle, and everybody's scattered all over the place. And here's a place to have that kind of meaningful connection with the body of Christ. So, uh, any of you watching a bit of the Olympics going on? I catch it as I can. I saw where uh, Michael Phelps picked up his 23rd gold, and uh, amazing. And then I read as I just saw, I almost never do, I never look at the news on Sunday morning, but I saw a little headline uh, concerning him and uh, something about his secret or something like that. Well, I want to know everybody's secrets, and so um, I clicked on there. But it stated the fact that in 2014, uh, he hit a real crisis in his life with uh, his second DUI and a lot of uh, broken relationships in his life and different things. And he knew who he was in life as a swimmer, but he didn't know who he was outside of the pool. And he ended up checking in a place called the Meadows in, uh, in uh, Arizona and uh, picked up a copy of uh, Rick Warren's uh, Purpose Driven Life and uh, turned him completely around, brought hope into his life and understanding of the plan that God had for his life. And so the story behind the story, that's what I like. And I don't think NBC was going to tell us that, so that's what I'm here for, to give you these little revelations. Let's stand together and let's, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 13 this morning. We're studying the book of Acts on Sunday morning, and we come to chapter 13. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you wave, they'll put one in your hand, it'll be marked to our passage, and if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you today. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. 
Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Manaean, who was, had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them. And then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for how you are really the hound of heaven by your Holy Spirit in our lives. And we thank you for the testimony here concerning Michael Phelps and uh, his heart being turned toward you, Lord. We don't know anything beyond that. You know all of that. But it reminds us of our story and where you went high and low, Lord, in order to find us, meet us where we were, infuse hope in our, our hopelessness and in our desperation and in our addictions and, and all of our goofiness. And you met us there and you changed our lives. And we bless you for that this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you do that same work in each person that's in this room this morning that doesn't know you yet. And we ask that you would bless your word to our hearts, these three verses in your word that's going to outlive the heavens and the earth. And we just acknowledge before we even begin to study it that nothing that the most powerful men in the world and women are, is going to have the final say in human history. Uh, no individual decision of the most anonymous of men and women is going to have uh, the final say related to their life. You will have the final say, and your word will. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to study it this morning. And we ask that you would lift the truths that are found in these three verses off of the page and that you would build them into a living, daily part of our Christian life. We pray for the Austria team that is now there and things in heading into full swing in that missions conference, and we pray that you continue to give them good health and good fellowship and a great attitude as they serve their Lord. Bless them and let your influence through them be a great refreshment that are all, all of the people that are coming there to be refreshed, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Chapter 13 of the book of Acts marks a pivotal point in the history of Christianity and the history of the church. And in these three verses, uh, which would be in a reading of the book of Acts, very, very easy to just kind of simply glance over. These three verses mark the beginning of a completely new age in church history. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus had promised the disciples this dynamic power of the Holy Spirit that would allow them to be witnesses unto Him in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And in chapters 1 through 12 of Acts, it records their successes in bringing the gospel, bringing the news of God's offer of salvation and forgiveness to mankind 
all the way from uh, in, into Jerusalem, into Judea, ultimately into Samaria. It occurred with a supernatural success as all of that happened. And then beginning in chapter 13 and then continuing all the way through uh, chapter 28 of the book of Acts, we have this record of the gospel now formally extending toward the uttermost parts of the earth. And chapters 13 and 14 are a record of the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey and the first of three that he would lead and the first launch of what we would call uh, missionaries today in church history. Previously, Christians had gone out from Jerusalem. They were scattered into Judea, scattered into Samaria because of the persecution, interestingly enough, led by the uh, Saul of Tarsus, ultimately to become the Apostle Paul himself. And as they scattered into all of the various regions, they preached the gospel there. But they weren't formal missionaries. We would consider them to be kind of accidental missionaries. And uh, they headed out where they headed out. They were scattered where they were scattered and preached the gospel there with great effect. And, uh, but now we have the Holy Spirit directing a church to send out missionaries in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And all of this is uh, very interesting to most of us, or at least it ought to be, in that most of us in this room, when you heard the gospel and became a Christian, you didn't hear it in Jerusalem. You didn't hear it in Judea. You didn't hear it in Samaria. But you heard it as a, an extension of the Apostle Paul's ministry to the uttermost parts of the earth, his bringing the gospel there. And I think, wouldn't it be something to be able to track our spiritual birth all the way back through the ages, from the person who shared the gospel with us to the person who shared the gospel with them to the person who shared the gospel with them, and so forth and so forth, all the way uh, back, and then to perhaps discover that our spiritual birth traces all the way back to those three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Well, maybe we'll find out someday uh, in heaven. Maybe they have an, uh, a spiritual uh, ancestry.com up in heaven that we can find out and trace the whole thing back. It'd be fascinating to see how many of us are linked right here to Acts chapter 3 uh, in our faith. Maybe we won't care then, or maybe we'll know our whole spiritual uh, uh, heritage by virtue of our glorified body. Now, notice in this passage, just a light exposition of it before I want to make a single application from the passage that I think the Holy Spirit wants to make uh, this morning. We see once again uh, in verse 1 the mention of this church that was at Antioch. And we remember from chapter 11 that the church was established in Antioch when Jews were scattered out of Jerusalem because of the persecution of uh, Paul or Saul of Tarsus, and they came into Antioch and they began to preach the gospel, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, and they crossed a significant line uh, in, in uh, doing that. And the result was, we're told in verse 21 of chapter 11, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And so many people became Christians in Antioch at that moment in time that news of it got back to Jerusalem 300 miles away. 
And the apostles decided that they needed to send someone out there to make sure uh, everything was going okay and to see if they could be of help some way, and they sent Barnabas out to investigate. When Barnabas arrived in Antioch, he saw, yes, this is a work of the Holy Spirit. He was excited about what he was seeing, and he encouraged all of the Christians there to uh, continue in uh, their relationship with God. And as he's there, he realized immediately, here you've got this church that's made up uh, virtually entirely of brand-new Christians. And when he realized that, he realized they desperately needed teaching, and so he made the journey uh, 123 miles from Antioch to Tarsus. He knew just the man for the occasion, and he hunted down uh, Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, brought him back uh, to Antioch. And uh, here, Paul, ten years after his conversion, he now leaves the relative anonymity of Tarsus to return to Antioch with Barnabas in order to disciple the new Christians. And we're told that he, they did that for, and he taught them for an entire year, after which the uh, leadership or the church at Antioch, hearing that there was a famine that was causing the church in Jerusalem to suffer, sent an offering with Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem as an expression of their love and their concern uh, for them. Paul and Barnabas then uh, came back with John Mark from that particular trip. More about that another time. Now, these events that are recorded in uh, ch chapter 13 these occur five to six years after the establishing of the church in chapter 11. So it isn't just a matter of weeks that's gone by or months that have gone by. You have a very, very strong uh, church that was developed over those years. And at this point in church history, Jerusalem now ceases to be the center for Christianity, the center for the sending out of missionaries, the center for the fulfillment of the Great Commission, and instead that mantle now gets passed to this sin-filled a very large city, third largest city in the Roman Empire of over half a million uh, people and uh, located to what we know today as Turkey. It's centered now, the whole Great Commission now, in that early church in the city of Antioch. We're given a little bit of, uh, of a glimpse into their leadership in the passage. It was a very gifted church and its leadership uh, included those who were gifted by the Holy Spirit to be both prophets and also teachers. And uh, some of them were prophets. A prophet is someone who speaks forth for God. God gives them a prophecy. They speak it forth. Sometimes it has a foretelling element to it, but uh, sometimes it doesn't. It's just something that God's people need to hear at a moment in time, and God speaks through a prophet what it is that uh, they and we need to hear. Some others were teachers, and teachers are just simply those that God has called to read and explain and apply the Scriptures in a simple, understandable uh, way. Their names are given to us here, uh, five of them in their leadership, Barnabas, and this is the Barnabas we've been following all the way through the book of Acts. 
He is the son of comfort or consolation. He's a Jew from Cyprus. Simon, uh, Simeon, rather, is listed here, who is called uh, Niger, so he possesses a Jewish name, Simeon, but then he uh, later became known as Niger, which means black. And so it isn't unlikely that he was an African Jew who changed his name in order to work a little more effectively uh, among the Gentiles in the city of Antioch. Lucius of Cyrene is mentioned, and uh, he's living in Antioch, but he's originally from Cyrene. Cyrene is a city that was located in what we know today as uh, Libya, so he is from North Africa. Uh, Manaean, we're told, was one of the leaders. He was brought up with Herod Antipas, who was the Roman governor who ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. He was raised as a foster brother, not a blood brother to Herod Antipas, but he was raised as a foster brother. So he is an aristocrat. He was raised in privilege. He was raised in the midst of power and and wealth and so forth, and and, uh, later uh, went on to become a Christian while Herod uh, grew up and uh, ultimately became a monster. It's interesting how people can be raised in the same exact environment uh, in life and then end up on such entirely different tracks. Finally, there is mentioned Saul, uh, who will very shortly become known as the Apostle Paul, a former Pharisee from the city of Tarsus and schooled in Jerusalem. It's a very, very diverse group of men in this leadership, and uh, the diversity represented the diversity of the population, Jewish and Gentile, uh, within the city of uh, Antioch itself. Jesus really uh, does unify a wide spectrum of people uh, in life and in the whole wide world. But not only were they gifted by God as leaders and as a church, but that gifting was coupled with deep spirituality. A gift and a calling from God, if it's not uh, coupled with uh, a deep spirituality, isn't going to be of much use to God or anyone else. We notice in verse 3 that they were men of prayer. And uh, prayer, one of my favorite expressions related to prayer, is that prayer is an expression of my dependence upon God. So it said something about them. They recognized that they couldn't do what God was calling them to do on their own, that they were dependent upon uh, the Lord. They possessed that recognition of what Jesus had said, apart from me, you can be nothing. Uh, Sometimes in our hearts and minds as Christians, it's something that we believe. It's something that's tucked away in our minds. Uh, This church realized that no, in the middle of Antioch, in the early part of the early church, uh, apart from him, we can't do anything. And when you have that recognition, then you're going to become a person of prayer. We're told in verse 2 that they ministered to the Lord, and the idea is that they worshiped him. Worship means when we worship the Lord, it is to ascribe worth to him. Uh, One of the Greek words that's used in the New Testament uh, for our English word worship, it means to lean toward him to kiss. That's what worship is. That's what we were doing here earlier as we were worshiping the Lord uh, in song. And so they blessed and they praised and they worshiped God, and they did so for who he uh, was and who he is, and simply because he's always worthy of it. In life, and certainly in the Bible, the lesser 
always worships the greater. And so their worship of the Lord, their ministry to the Lord was an expression of their love for God, but also an expression of their submission to Him and His will for their lives, His will for the church as well. It's to communicate that my life is yours, you are the greater, I submit to your plans for my life, you use my life however you see fit. We see further in verse 2 that they fasted, and that's kind of just the suspending of the normal daily activity of, of eating in order to invest that time now in worship and prayer and the seeking of the Lord and, and, uh, and, and as an expression of a desire on our part to hear from, uh, from God. I, I'm of the mind that in their fasting here, that somehow they had some kind of a sense, some impression from the Holy Spirit that change was coming. Something was going to happen. God was about to do something uh, in their uh, midst, and I think it isn't unlikely that was the reason for their prayer and their fasting. I don't think it's unlikely that they were concerned about the evangelization of the world and their seeking of the Lord's direction and all of this, but they know they feel God wants to speak something to them. They haven't heard it yet. And uh, as an expression of their desire to hear God's voice, um, they begin to fast. And then significantly, we notice that they were led by the Holy Spirit. You notice in verse 2 what the Holy Spirit communicated to them. The Holy Spirit declared, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. You wonder sometimes when you read that, how is it that God uh, spoke to them? I don't think He spoke to them out loud. Uh, he might have, but I don't think He did. One of the, really, one of the fun things, it's a frustrating uh, kind of fun, but one of the fun things that happens in a Christian's life is over the long haul of weeks and months and years of walking with the Lord is ultimately we do learn individually how to hear God and how He speaks to us individually, and how He does it with you, and how He does it with me, and how I might recognize His leading in my life, how you might. It can be very, very different, and, uh, but it's one of the fun things to grow in that way and have that as a part of our Christian, uh, Christian life. I don't think it was necessarily out loud. I'm of, of the mind that in their days of worshiping, in their days of fasting, that God, uh, the Holy Spirit, probably gave one of these men, one of the prophets perhaps, a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge uh, communicating this fact. He got up, spoke it, and then the Holy Spirit bore witness to that truth in the heart of everyone who was listening, and they realized that is the mind of the Lord concerning what it is that we're seeking Him uh, about, and, uh, uh, and then uh, to take and obey it. We notice that uh, further we're told that they then fasted and prayed even further after the revelation there in verse 3, and after which they then laid their hands upon uh, Saul or Paul and Barnabas. And it wasn't that they imparted anything necessarily to them. I like what J. Vernon McGee says related to all of this. He says, when we lay hands on other people, all we impart to them from ourselves 
is the germs that are on our hands. But it symbolizes something. It symbolizes a camaraderie. It symbolizes the fact that we are with you, all for one, one for all, and an expression of, of solidarity. You are going forth, but we go forth in our heart uh, with you, and we stand behind you. And they were then sent out to begin, verse 3, what would be the first of uh, what would ultimately become Paul's three missionary journeys. And Paul and Barnabas now become the focus, later Paul and Silas, the focus of the rest of the book of Acts. They gather the, all the attention. But I think it's important to recognize before we leave uh, Niger and Lucius and Manaean that these gentlemen could never have left the church at Antioch and headed out in on those missionary journeys, the first missionary journey to begin all of this, if these men hadn't committed to continuing to be faithful in their calling in that uh, church at Antioch. And so uh, begins this new and amazing chapter in the early church. Now, please allow me to use uh, our remaining time to focus on an important application, I think, that the Holy Spirit wants to make to us from this passage. And, uh, and I enjoy taking, as we've just spent a few minutes here, 18 minutes and three seconds to be exact, in case you aren't counting, uh, to lay out what's actually happening in the passage. Because you know what? I, I can get up here and I can just say a bunch of stuff, and, and it's not going to outlive uh, lunchtime, let alone uh, heaven and earth. Uh, the power, uh, the long-lasting thing that occurs within our life comes from understanding the Word of God. And so the discipline that it requires, the attention that it requires to know then now for the rest of my life, if I'm relatively new to the Bible or not, oh, that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 13. And it helps me make sense uh, of, of the Bible for the rest of my life. But now let's uh, uh, move on to the application, and it has to do with the leading of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and uh, specifically in the church at Antioch, but our lives as well. I want us to notice uh, Antioch's dependence upon the Holy Spirit for his leading in their decision-making. And for the sake of those who are a little bit new to all of this, let's ask ourselves and answer the question, who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is a person. Holy Spirit is a person. He doesn't have a body, but he has all other kinds of other marks of personality. He thinks, he's present, he speaks, he communicates, he leads, he guides, he gives understanding. The Holy Spirit is a person, and he is present as a person in this room right this instant with us. He is not an it, he is not merely a impersonal force or a force uh, at all, but he is a person. Uh, and Jesus declared concerning the uh, Holy Spirit, he said, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper. The Holy Spirit is a helper that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, but I will come to you. 
And the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. He is as divine, He is as powerful, He is as wise as God the Father is and as God the Son is. And when Jesus declared to the disciples that the Holy Spirit would be another helper that, and that I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you, He was declaring to His disciples that what He had been to them personally during the three and a half years of His public ministry, that the Holy Spirit would now be to them following His ascension, and that the Holy Spirit would be to us as Christians today on the other side of that ascension. And this is really a a fabulous reality to stop and to think about, that just as Jesus provided the disciples with discipleship, direction, wisdom, encouragement, fellowship, uh, power, and so forth, the Holy Spirit will do the exact same things for us. I think it's important to examine the passage a little bit as we're looking at this to see if there's anything here that we might be able to glean from it in terms of the things that can be helpful to us in order to understand, help us in, uh, in our desire to be led and directed by the Holy Spirit. And I think the passage gives us some revelation. I mean, everybody sooner or later as a Christian wants to be led by the Holy Spirit. We want to know where He wants to lead us, what His direction is in our life, and so forth. So I look at the passage and I say, is there anything that can help me here as a Christian, some helpful revelation in this uh, desire that I have and we have to be led and directed by the Holy Spirit? And there is. First, we notice that they were already operating in God's gifting and calling upon their lives. They were prophets and they were teachers. And they were operating in the gifting and in the calling that they already knew that God had on their lives. They were being obedient to that calling. There's the old saying about God and His leading in our lives as Christians that it's easier to steer a car that is moving than one that is standing uh, still. And And it speaks to that, the importance of moving in our calling, moving in our gifting, and then it's easier for God to direct us while we're being obedient to that. I think it's next to useless to uh, seek God for wisdom and direction in my life if I'm uh, either disobedient to His call upon my life or I'm indifferent to it. I mean, why would He reveal more to us if we haven't cared enough about what He's already revealed to us uh, by obeying it. So the importance of being busy about His business in all of this. Second, these men and the church itself, they had a working knowledge of the Word of God. They were, after all, teachers, and they were prophets. But the congregation was very, very well taught uh, as well. Paul had been teaching them morning, noon, and night for several years now to say nothing of what Barnabas was doing and all of the other teachers and leaders were doing there within the church. It is the Word of God that provides us with the surest and the clearest revelation of the will of God that we possess. It is peerless. It is 
faultless, if it speaks to us about any area in our life and gives us direction related to that area, we can know like nothing else that this is God's will for my life. And every decision that we make as Christians should begin with a question, what does the Bible say about this decision that I'm going to make, and then to find out what it says and then to do it. Third, I noticed that they believed in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They believed in gifts like word of wisdom, word of knowledge, prophecy, revelation gifts. There's a section of the body of Christ today that does not believe in these gifts as being something for today. They believed in those gifts. They depended upon those gifts. They are starting the entire missionary movement and expansion of the gospel into the uttermost parts of the earth based upon something that God has spoken to them in the form of a spiritual gift. So they believed in these things. These were things that they uh, operated in. And one of the vital ways that the Holy Spirit uses in order to lead us as His people is the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I do want to say without, uh, uh, you know, appearing to, uh, you know, put my thumb on, on, you know, somebody's head or something like that, but just to make the observation from my own spirit as a Christian who lives in this world and in the United States with all that is going on around all of us every single day and the concerns that we have as Christians in the light of that. But I think that the days of dismissing the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, the poo-pooing of any gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, for us as American Christians, that is over. We're going to need every bit of revelation that He chooses to give us, whether we are comfortable with it or we are not comfortable uh, with it, anything that He has to offer us. Uh, we are going to desperately need. We've always desperately needed it, but we've had the margins to be a little fat and sassy spiritually, and those margins are disappearing. And so the, uh, the uh, leading through spiritual gifts and including, as is described of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, his giving him the uh, freedom to distribute to each one individually as he wills. Now, fourth, we're told that they ministered to the Lord. And again, as we saw earlier, they had a relationship with Him. They loved the Lord. Uh, They worshiped Him. And again, that is, they understood that He was the greater and that they were the lesser in the relationship. And that wasn't something that troubled them. They didn't compete with God for His position uh, in their life. That was something that blessed them and they were pleased to acknowledge it. And because of that, again, they surrendered uh, their will to His will, whatever that will might be. And, I mean, what good would it do for the Holy Spirit to attempt to direct someone if they haven't settled this issue, that God is the greater in this relationship that I have with Him, if I'm still competing with Him in that, in that way. And this is known as settling the issue of Jesus' Lordship in my life, that He isn't merely my Savior, but He is my Savior and also my uh, Lord. And here is this surrender 
uh, to the Lord. God, you can spend my life however it is that you uh, choose to spend my life. Everything that I have, everything that I am, it belongs to you. You can do whatever you want with it. And the church at Antioch was a church that was sold out to God. Now, it wasn't too many years ago that being sold out and sold out and sold out, it was like awesome. It just got so overused that it became meaningless. But I don't hear sold out a lot anymore. And it's kind of refreshing, actually. And to take a look and allow the words to kind of re-enter our vocabulary in our Christian life and then to view this church that completely sold out to God and His will and His plan for their lives. Beautiful to see it and to recognize it. Fifth, they prayed. And how in the world is God going to direct a prayerless person? It's very important for knowing the will of God and being directed by Him. Sixth, they fasted. Again, another expression, a heightened expression of my desire to know God's will and to be led by His Holy Spirit and for them not to view it as some kind of a fanatical or radical thing, uh, but as a normal part of their uh, Christian life is directed by the Spirit. Paul would later write to the church at Colossae. He would say, and let the peace of God rule or umpire in your hearts. Very often the Holy Spirit leads us. Uh, you, m the way that I, I work it in that is when I'm looking at some decision or some situation in my life, the first thing, the first grid of the test is, what does the Bible say about this? And I'm going to find out what the Bible says about this. The second thing in that grid for me is, what do, when I look at this decision I'm about to make, do I have the peace of God about going in the direction I think I'm uh, being tempted to go in? And the Bible teaches that for us as Christians, that we're to walk in God's peace. When I was a new Christian, in this whole idea of walking in the peace of God was kind of new to me. And when I read that passage related to Paul teaching, and you come to the forks in the road, I thought that I'd come to a fork, and God would give me a little more peace to go left than to go right. And then I came to realize that, no, we're supposed to walk in His peace, and then when we come to a fork in the road and we look at the fork on the left and our peace remains, then that's one of the ways that He directs us. If we look to the right-hand fork and we lose our peace, it's like He's doing somersaults inside of us. It's like He's yelling, but He's not yelling. He's trying to get our attention. He's not comfortable with us thinking about that direction. We lose our peace. And one of the things I've learned never to do is to go against my peace, that peace that constitutes the leading of the Holy Spirit. I stand before you as a person that every time I've gone against that peace, it has been a mistake. So the importance of being led by the peace of God within our uh, lives. I remember as a new Christian, I was listening to uh, a, a Bible a cassette teaching by Pastor Greg Laurie, and he told the story of how he was um, 
a new pastor at Calvary Chapel Riverside Na Harvest Fellowship. And as a new pastor, he and Kathy married. They were living in a small kind of house they were renting there in Riverside. And they left that house because now they had maybe a little bit more money to get into a better house. And so they moved from that house uh, without prayer seeking the Lord. These are just kind of obvious decisions, right? And then they moved into this new house that they were renting. And when they got all of the furniture put into the house and in place, they stood in the living room and they realized, we're not supposed to be here. We're not supposed to be here. They lost their peace. They had a peace in the simpler place, in the humbler place, and they did not have a peace in this newer place. And Greg learned, as he mentioned in his study, an important lesson about the leading of the Holy Spirit. And as a new Christian, it was very helpful for me to hear that as an illustration because then as I began to grow as a Christian, I would try to now learn about that peace by sometimes getting it wrong and sometimes getting it right. But on whatever side of the thing there, I would realize, wow, I have lost my peace. I've got to regroup and I've got to seek God about what it is that I'm in the middle of right now. And the Lord very often leads us uh, in this way. And seventh, we notice that in terms of this hearing, uh, this, you know, kind of spiritual culture that allows us to hear God's voice and allows him to lead us as fully as he desires to, we notice that they obeyed him immediately once they knew uh, what his will was. And that should always be, uh, the res- that's always the response of someone who values knowing God's will is to then o- obey it immediately. And these things should mark our lives if we're really serious about receiving the Lord's direction in our lives as Christians. Now, there are many, many blessings to being led by the Holy Spirit, but one of the most important blessings of being led by the Holy Spirit is this thing called confidence. It produces a confidence in our life as Christians that we would not otherwise know. How priceless would this confidence of the leading of the Holy Spirit ultimately be to the Apostle Paul in the course of his first missionary journey and in the course of his three missionary journeys uh, when those missionary journeys would ultimately result in stonings and imprisonment and scourgings and conflict. He would desperately need at those moments to be able to look back and say, no, God called me to do what he's called me to do here. God led me to make this decision that I made in that situation and, uh, and to go back to that and have that confidence while the circumstances in life are rising up against the wisdom or the comfort of that decision that has been made even though it was the right decision. And the Apostle Paul would need this kind of clarity from God to possess that confidence later when it became very, very hard to do what it is that God had called him uh, to do. And when we're led by the Holy Spirit, uh, we then know that we're in God's will, and it provides us then this priceless confidence in our lives 
that we're in God's will, and this is what God has called us to do. He has spoken to me. He has confirmed it in Scripture, and God knows that we will desperately need that confidence one day of the sureness of His leading when our Christian lives and our Christian service uh, become uh, difficult. And in those seasons, in our service to the Lord, when the voice of other people uh, is very important in terms of encouragement, but they cannot sustain us. Only the leading and a history with the Holy Spirit can sustain us in that hour, and it is vital. Now, all of this then raises a very simple question, but I think it's an appointed question, and that is, is my life directed by the Holy Spirit? That's where the rubber meets the road this morning for each and every one of us as Christians. And that's the question that I believe that God wants me to uh, direct toward our hearts here this morning. How much of our individual lives are in that category? What portion of our lives, my life, are we living with the confidence that the Holy Spirit has directed me? Has He directed me concerning where I live, where I work, my area of Christian service, who I make my peers in life, my friends? Has He been involved at all in directing me concerning who I make the influencers within my life, concerning where I go to college or university, what my major should be in university, how and where I spend my money, how I uh, spend my time? We're told that in the United States, the average American spends about six hours a day watching television. And I, whenever I read those statistics, I ask myself and, and pose it to you today, do you think that the Holy Spirit would ever direct a Christian to spend six waking hours of every day watching television? Can you imagine the Apostle Paul sitting on a couch somewhere with a remote in his hand. It's, a, it's a, just a horrific thought, isn't it? Just slouched down with a Coke and uh, frittering away six hours a day in front of the boob tube. Now, you look at the television, and then that's to say nothing of all of the time that is then in many lives, uh, the time that gets heaped upon that in the form of playing video games or being on the internet, or being on Facebook, or texting on top of all of those six hours. And then to convince myself that, you know, I have no time to be a part of a home fellowship, or to lead a home fellowship, or to be a part of volunteering for Calvary Kids Bible Club, that, you know, this fall and this winter. And I don't say any of this is a guilt gotcha. I got out of that out of my system a lot of uh, years ago. I'm just thinking out loud as it relates to the passage. Again, how much of your and my living, our spending, our doing, our working, do we know confidently is being done under the direction and the leading of the Holy Spirit? That it is occurring because of some passage that we have seen in the Word of God or some word of knowledge or word of wisdom from the Holy Spirit. It's been born out of prayer 
or out of fasting within our lives. And can I sit down and look at the entirety of my life, how it's being lived and how it's being spent, and say to myself, I have complete peace that my life is being led by the Holy Spirit. And if I don't, you know, it would only take half an hour to sit down before God this week and pray through each of these areas in our lives and to just simply ask God, show me if I am in your will in these areas of my life and show me how much of my life is under the control and the direction of your Holy Spirit. And the reason that this is important is that all that happens in the remaining 16 chapters of the book of Acts starts here with that surrender. It begins with the direction and the leading of the Holy Spirit in individual Christians' lives who are no different than us, though they lived 2,000 years ago. If my life as a Christian is not being led by the Holy Spirit, it's not surrendered to the will of the Holy Spirit in this way, then the rest of this book has absolutely nothing to say to me experientially. It will give me tremendous head knowledge. It will be all theory as opposed to something I am living and breathing as well in the little place in this world that God has called me to live for him and to manifest his kingdom in. And if you've never done that, if you do not have the confidence that your life as a Christian is being directed by the Holy Spirit, Take an hour this week. Sit down with your husband or your wife, or if you don't have one of those, then sit down uh, alone, or alone even if you do have a husband or a, a wife, and list all of the people and the places that your time and your effort and your money are going into, and ask God, is this your will for my life? Do I have your peace that I am in your will in these areas of my life. And then when I do that, I can walk away from that time with God and experience that needed confidence that results and, uh, and will hold when literally all hell will ultimately can break loose uh, in our lives later on. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, it describes the launching of this new chapter in church history called missions. But none of it would have happened without a dependence upon the Holy Spirit and his leading. That is what is at the core of these three verses. That is what is at the heart of these three verses. Yes, the missionary journeys are wonderful, but they would have never happened apart from the Holy Spirit's leading. And it is the foundation of everything that follows now in the book of Acts. When I look at the future of Christianity and, and the church in, with a, a capital C uh, in the United States of America, and I see all of the challenges that we face, there is only 
one thing that gives me hope for the future, and it is the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the third person of the Godhead who will go with us into that future and being led and directed by Him. If I were to look at the future, my future as a Christian, the future of Christianity in the United States of America solely on the basis of demographic studies done by Christians or in the light of some, the analysis, the endless analysis of post-Christian America or some new set of man-made programs that we're going to throw at the trends that are in front of us, or the answer is in human talent or human charisma or in human wisdom or in human cleverness or in more effort. If I looked at the path in front of us in the light of those things, my heart would completely sink. It is that the Holy Spirit who is with us and will guide us and use us in the same way that He did with the, Holy Church, uh, the early church, that is what gives us confidence that is what gives us hope and, yes, even expectation concerning the future of what God is going to do with Christianity in our part of the harvest field known as the United States of America. But it must start individually. And if you've never done so and you don't have that confidence or knowledge of how much your life or whether your life is under the control of the Spirit or that the virtual majority of it is, then take that time this week if needed so that individually and as a church and as the church in the world today, we can look forward to the future with a confidence and peace instead of fear and uncertainty. Great things lie ahead as we are filled with the Holy Spirit and directed by His Holy Spirit and Him giving power and authority to His gospel and His Word, not only in the lives of those who are saved, but in the lives of those who are unsaved. He's done it for 2,000 years. He is very good at it, and he is going to produce that same future for us. Let's stand together, and we'll pray now. Thank you, Father, for this passage. Thank you for our personal leak link to what it is that began in these first three verses of chapter 13. And thank you for the simple and practical application from the passage today. Help us, Lord, to seek the fullness of the Christianity that we see in your Bible 
and not the Christianity that is all around us, or worse, the Christianity of our own making and of our own defining. We pray, Lord, for where the shoe fits, and beginning with me, Lord, of the application today that you would remind us we're needed this week to take that time and to freshly surrender to you and to seek you about how large of a place you are playing and the leading of our individual lives. And then, Lord, where this is only salvation, but it's not lordship, we pray that you would meet with us and the issue of your lordship would be settled in our lives as well. We look to you, Lord, to confirm your word and what is found in it this morning with accompanying signs and wonders as we take steps now to obey you and to seek you, Lord, in your mind and your ways as we see them here. And we ask all of these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a Christian,